listening to the Taming Hinges podcast. Conversations about self-awareness and mental health. We talk about anything and everything on the podcast. Real experiences, real life. Come get triggered. Welcome to another episode of the Taming Hindrances podcast. My name's Phil. I'm the host and creator of the podcast. And today's episode is Vox. Vox is the Latin word, which if we directly translate into English becomes voice. And I believe voice to be an important step or understanding voice is an important step in the world of self-awareness. Specifically, when we look at, I use Vox instead of just voice because Vox, uh, in using Latin, if you put Vox in front of something, it's giving voice to, or it might be in representation of a voice to something. Um, so you have like uh, Vox Populi, uh, which is, you know, um, understand like a, a understood uh, presentation or an understood point. Um, and I'm not getting all this right because. I'm not the greatest with Latin, but when you put Vox in front of something, something like uh, Vox Vosis of Lacentia, uh, that'd be like the voice of freedom, those types of things. You can give voice to something that's Vox. Vox is voice of something. And, you know, just a basic translation of Vox would be a, a human voice. And that's where I think my representation of voice comes from. And I'd like to share it with you in hopes that it'll give you a better understanding of how to develop one's own voice. And one's own voice can be something more than just the way you speak or, you know, your vernacular, your colloquial use, your um, translation, your, what's the word I'm looking for here? Your, um, just your methodology of speaking, you know, how you come across, even going down to like your accent, those types of things. The representation of your voice can be far more than just the vocal system that our, you know, our body produces, that our vocal cords produce. That's why, you know, things can have voice and people can express their voice. And that's why I say vox um, instead of voice. So what is your voice? How do you use your voice to represent yourself are kind of the two big questions at hand here. And, you know, first up, if one is representing themselves using a methodology in which sound is produced or no sound is produced, there's a lot to be said about not voicing anything, not making any sound. Those individuals that you might come across in your life, or you even might be one of these individuals where you're not a verbal person. Maybe you don't show emotions verbally. Maybe you're a, a touchy person or maybe you're, you know, just, you know, you ever met one of those like rock solid people who just don't talk. They're very, you know, quote unquote stoic. Remember, I call stoicism, uh, I use stoicism a little bit differently than some people. A lot of people say to be stoic is to not have emotion where I believe the truest methodology of stoic or stoicism is to be in control of one's emotions. It's not that a stoic doesn't have emotional reactions. It's they don't show it. They have ra 
logic and reason beforehand. They take in that emotion before they, you know, just act upon it. It's, it's not just acting upon emotions. It's acting upon the whole thing. So if you have an emotional response, maybe you're not someone who voices that. Maybe you're not a quick to words individual. Maybe you're more of a physical representation. Um, maybe you have methodologies. Some people, um, you know, I shouldn't just say some people. There's a lot of people who represent themselves emotionally and physically and specifically in the realm of like showing compassion or beyond that, showing um even romantic intent, there's nonverbal people, you know, they might show it with touch or, uh, I've known individuals and I'm kind of like this in some ways where they might not verbalize their emotional feeling towards someone. They might do it through touch. I do a lot of what I do through touch. I'm a massage therapist, but there's a professional side there. So like all of my touch on the massage therapy side is professional. It's very, I don't want to say robotic, but it's very much a system of touch that comes out through my martial experience. So Tai Chi, um, all of all the different, you know, Bagua, Tai Chi, Kung Fu, Karate, all of these different martial systems that I've been lucky enough to take part in come out through my traditional Chinese medicine backgrounds. You know, I'm not a traditional my, TCM practitioner, but I, I've learned a lot about it. I've experienced it myself. Even in, in that, my experiences get shown in my methodology of touch. My movement, just how I move through a crowd or move through a, a building is all these expressions of things that were experiences of my life. So I find there's individuals like that. There's plenty of people I've met who, you know, a handshake says more than the conversation. Or I've, you know, been in positions where in a personal matter, it's much more easy for me to show mm, not like or dislike. Well, yeah, I guess like or dislike using touch instead of verbalizing it. Uh, I, I'm typically verbally short with everyone, although I can be very long winded. I don't speak to a lot of people. I do more talking on this podcast than I do in my entire week up until I do the podcast. Like there's just more talking here than I speak during the entire week and I deal with clients and I, you know, I have to explain things. So I do a lot more talking in this medium than I do in others. And that might be similar for you. That's why I say Vox, what is your voice, but what is your methodology of expressing it? And what does your voice represent? How do you use it to represent yourself? That's the other side of the question. How are you using your methodology of voice or Vox to represent yourself because that's where I think a lot of people get stuck. They get stuck in the idea of trying to use, as I've talked about before, uh, way back at the beginning of this podcast about, you know, systems and perspectives and the reality in which we live in those types of things. A lot of people get stuck in a system where they're supposed to do it this way or that way. And it's just not, it doesn't work for them because they're not a verbal person or maybe they are more of a physical touched person to, you know, the way they express themselves, those types of things, or even better. I've been lucky enough in my life to experience a lot of different people, um, you know, people of different cultures, people of different 
backgrounds, people of different upbringings, you know, people, rich people, poor people. You pick a dipole. I've probably met someone or been lucky enough to experience someone from that dipole. You know, even if it was a shitty experience, you know, I, st I still got an experience with these in these people from different backgrounds that there's all sorts of things in the mental health world that get expressed differently from different people. This is why I say another reason I say depression is so uniquely who you are that no one else can understand it. It's impossible. Stop saying, you know, I understand you don't. Your depression is your methodology, your way of seeing the world. It's the glasses you put on and the translation that happens. I talked about that in the uh, depression episode, I believe it's episode 15 where depression is how we take in the world around us and also how we express ourselves therefrom. So what is your voice of depression? How does your depression voice itself? How does your mental states voice themselves? What things change your voice? You know, what do, do you have a quiet voice? Do you have a loud voice? Do they change in different situations? I'm very much a change in different situations person. Often people who experience me in a setting get a different experience just because of them themselves or the setting there I'm in. If I'm in a group setting, I'm typically not, well, one, I probably don't want to be there. So I'm typically either trying to find my way out where I'm sticking to a, a small group of people. Um, if it's like a bar setting, which I, you know, I, I used to work at bars. So when I would go to the bar, the, my reason for public drinking used to be not so much anymore was because I shouldn't be drinking alone. So my outward appearance was very standoffish, but my inward monologue and my inward interaction was to go find groups to entertain essentially to make myself entertaining to people to tell jokes and these types of things to, to make their night a little bit more better or to completely avoid those conversations. If I thought I was going to drag them down, oftentimes people would see me on the edge of the porch, smoking a cigarette, just very, just me faced, which is just stoic and contemplative, but also very like put offish and at times. And that's a voice. Uh, in the Marshall communities, we call this prescience, which is to express oneself using a, some people might say, quote unquote, energy or bioelectric field or whatever word you want to put on it. But there is a methodology that a lot of people have, even though they might not know it, and it might not be that strong to express to put out a voice, to put out a expression, to give people an idea of what's going on. Um, individuals who've ever done any security work or people who've been in combat, um, people who have experienced um, violent interactions, oftentimes will talk about, or maybe if they think back on it, will remember a moment of feeling it before it happened or, or just knowing something was off. Um, specifically in people who have been in violent interactions in which they weren't expecting the violent interaction. It was uh, like a, or like, you know, surprise or somebody just like had a big blow up of feeling right before it happens that, yeah, you might be surprised from it, but there was this like moment where you were like, wait a minute, something's about to happen. Like there's like electricity in the air and 
the not violent setup, there's the group feeling of that. A lot of people get it when they're at a sports game or uh, maybe um, a concert or something like that. They feel this like the buzz, the energy in the air, you feel the room. I believe this is something that professional performers, they are very attuned to, you know, a good comedian or a, a good public speaker will read the room, if you will. That's part of listening to Vox, but also having Vox. They're expressing that through their prescience. A really good public speaker can outwardly expel their prescience, is the martial term I'm using here, to kind of enliven the room. You know, people feed off their energy. Tony Robbins is a great example of that. Again, I've, I've said before, I don't always agree with Tony Robbins, but he kind of came out and said, you know, I'm kind of an asshole, but I'm still going to try to do the right thing. So I have to respect him in that nature. But he is a very good example of someone who can get others to feed off their energy by putting out this prescience, putting out this energy, if you just this feeling that everybody can feed off of. Another good example of that is someone like Gary Vaynerchuk, um, hashtag Gary V. He has a way of walking on stage or even what I really like about him as an example is if you look at his methodologies between him on stage and him in person, they don't change. He literally gives off the same feeling if it's watching him through a YouTube video or probably experience. I haven't actually done it, but watching just the videos of him doing a, a group talk on stage or him just having a meeting an interaction, you know, just in a boardroom. It's the same thing. You can see literally when he, he almost has a physical tell of when he's putting out that prescience and, he, you know, pay attention. I'm about to say something. Here it is. I'm putting it out there to when he's listening. It opens ebbs and flows. And it kind of is something I've seen a lot of CEOs of big companies capable of doing. I think he's aware of it and I think he knows how to use it. Not everyone does or has. And that's part of his vox. That's his voice. That's his method of being that individual, of being who he is, talking like he says, I'm using, I'm quoting him, you know, being in perpetuity, being honest, you know, being self-aware. He literally has a presence or a presence that goes along with that. And it's something we use in the martial communities or someone might use in the combat communities where I've personally experienced it. And I don't know many that have or do remember. I mean, I've obviously met people because I've worked in these communities and rec been in recreation around these communities where you might use the word. And I'm hesitant of talking about this because it, you know, it's, it's something that gets used in um, films and movies and uh, medium sources. And it's a little bit too light of a, a topic, I think, but it's known as bloodlust. Bloodlust is something you can feel. When someone wants to cause harm and will go at any length to do so, you can feel it. It leaks off them. It's, it's like a, a miasma almost. It's a, a dark spot in the room or, you know, in the area. You can feel it. That's prescience. That's them leaking out that bloodlust. Uh, one of the things uh, Miyasashi talks about in the Book of Five Rings is kind of a methodology in which to hide that or to feel it in others or to bring it out of others. There's a way of having that ebb and flow. And we talk about it in the internal martial arts to be a good martialist. One must know 
the the internal and the external and that the internal and the external are two sides to what's known as intention your intentions control you know i always talk about duality and triality internal versus external in the martial arts huge secret i'm just gonna like give out there because people like to hide it a lot and make you pay a lot of money for it it's known as intention and also to take that one step further, talking about self-awareness and mental health and Vox specifically, the idea of voice or expression, intention has everything to do with all of those mystical terms like chi, ki, prana, energy work, you know, all of those things are based on this idea of intention. Intention is a representation of presence or to be present in an intention. So we can use that idea to better represent ourselves or to keep others from tamping down our voice and to make sure our voice is our own because a lot of self-awareness comes down to being you, being who you are. So you need to understand your voice and it might not be a vocal voice. It might not be talking. It might be the random taps on the shoulder or head pats or hugs or, you know, it might be those types of things. People often find in intimate moments, you can say a lot more with your body. You don't need to voice it. That's part of Vox. That's part of representation. And again, I've been fortunate enough to experience a lot of these things. There is this idea of intention that gets represented or often I find leaks out of people. And you can see it in their facial expressions. And when people say, you know, you can read someone's eyes and all of these types of things. Yeah, there's whole sciences behind that. And, you know, there's interrogation things. And, you know, if someone looks up into the left or up into the right or all these different things that someone might use psychologically, that comes from this idea of intention. And intention leaks out of people. So when I talk about Vox or when you think about Vox, think about how you outwardly represent yourself and are you in control of it? Because getting control of it will also allow you to understand when someone else is trying to control it. So in, I always go back to martial situations because it's what I know best. In a martial situa situation, the idea of presence or prescience, you're either in control of it or someone can control you through it. Um, one of my first interactions with this, just as a quick story, was when I first got introduced, well, it wasn't my first introduction, but first formal introduction um, to learning uh, Bushido, um, but specifically not just Bushido, but Kenjutsu, which is Kenjutsu is the way of the sword um, or sword arts. And Bushido is the all of that without a sword. sword Kenjutsu sword play, Bushido is um, interaction of the body. Kind of like Aikido, but not quite. Bushido is its own practice. Um, Bushido is the methodology of fighting without a sword, but you would prefer to have a sword. You start with Kenjutsu. I start with a sword, and then I use Bushido if I lose my sword, or if I don't have a sword and someone else has a sword, Bushido, also very appropriate. But I happened to meet uh, someone who I would consider an amazing internal practitioner who is practicing what most would be considered a, an external art, which is Kenjutsu. You're practicing with a sword, but this individual, uh, sensei PJ was able to 
produce an interaction with me without moving. Uh, essentially, his he was he had a sword. I didn't have a sword, and he wanted to see my interaction. Of he was going to bring. He told me ahead of time he's going to bring the sword straight down, and he wants me to move out of that using a stepping pattern, react as I wanted. And unfortunately, at the time I was still trying to hide some of the things I knew because I was trained in Kali Eskrima, which is almost directly lineage to combating someone with a sword. So you can use Kali Eskrima to directly combat someone using Kenjutsu. Um, and I was also training in uh, another methodology of footwork um, from the Shaolin Black Flag Society, which the uh, Po, which is a three battle step situation. So I knew really good footwork to use, but I wasn't supposed to be showing it off. And I really wasn't there for me. I was there for another individual who wanted to learn these things. And he just kind of brought me along to make sure this individual was legit. That's really the only reason I was even in this studio or uh, would be a um, dojo. Uh, the only reason I was there was for an individual I knew to kind of just make sure what he was going to go get himself into was legit. And luckily enough, I had was able to have this experience with someone again who I would consider a master of the internal practices, who was also practicing an external art, brought this sword up and not quickly was going to bring it down. And I, I knew you know that was going to happen when he decided to do that was up to him. But before that, there was an interplay. And this is kind of the best way I can explain prescience. He leaked out his intention on purpose that he was going to bring this sword down. But he leaked out that intention before he did it. And by doing so, my representation, because I wasn't quite grounded at the time, nor was I was still learning quite a bit about my own Vox, made me, I was all, you know, we were squared off, all set up, made me go up on my toes. And going up on your toes in this situation against a sword wielder is a horrible idea. You don't want to be on your toes because if you're on your toes, you're forward leaning. And if your weight's going forward, you're very easy to strike with a sword. In fact, if the sword is just in front of you, you'll fall into it. So he leaked out his intention of what he was about to do. And it made me react. It made me go, oh shit, this dude is trying to kill me. It wasn't exactly bloodlust, but my body had that reaction. I didn't even think about it. My, I just felt my heels come off the floor, and that's when I knew I was dealing with someone who was far more experienced and far more powerful than I was. Luckily, I had been trained really well by that point. The first thing I did was sink my heels. I just put my feet flat back on the floor, and then I did something which I was trained in, which is eye contact, something a lot of martial artists don't get into a martialist will learn how to do appropriate eye contact and a whole war can be waged just through eye contact. It's another methodology of Vox in the martial communities. Eye contact. You can say a ton with your eyes. You can say everything from disdain to I really like you to I don't care about you. You can just say all sorts of things with your eyes. I'm not interested in this. You can even say like, I'm going to punch you in the face just with your eyes, that whole term staring daggers. That's another version of Vox. And it's another way we express ourselves. So we have all of these methodologies for expression. 
this individual and I made eye contact. And at that point, I knew in some way I had gained a modicum of respect from this person because I didn't just fall forward on my face. I sank my heels. I made a movement after he dropped the sword. I made a movement. Well, I could have done much better, but he had won. I already knew he had won that interaction. So I, I did a movement and I had mad respect for him because it was, it was an amazing experience. One on the hand that this dude didn't even know me and was willing to give me that interaction. It's not something most masters would do. It's not something most senseis would do with someone they didn't know that wasn't close to them unless they were trying to like scare somebody. And it wasn't that he was trying to scare me. It was literally that he was trying to test me to see what I knew. But also at the same point, when you do that, he's letting me know what he knows. And I was like, oh, this dude's legit. And that's what I told that person. I'm like, this person's legit. You should definitely train underneath of them. So that methodology is one, was one of my major experiences with what I consider Vox. Vox is an expressatory manner that doesn't have to be verbal. It could be physical movement, eye contact, some way you express your intentions. And then also a methodology of listening to other people's intentions. So when I talk about it in the self-awareness aspect, it's that. It's how are you expressing yourself to the world and what might be the interaction thereof? Because Vox is on both sides. You know, everything has voice. Everything has Vox. Everything has expression and intention. A cat hissing at you and growling at you, that's Vox. That's its intention. Stop doing what you're doing. It's probably not happy about it. A dog barking. Animals have this methodology and they're very vocal about it because in the animal kingdom, vocalizing it can have its own, you know, intentions. It can have its own expression and can have its own outcome. You know, there's the famous honey badger who doesn't care what you do to it. It's going to fight you and doesn't care about anything. So when a lion roars at a honey badger, honey badger just goes, I don't care. And that prescience, that leaking out of this honey badger's not caring makes the lion go, mm, do I want to fuck with this animal? I'm not really sure. Uh, this might not be the best idea. So that is the animal kingdom representation of how you might be going about your day and not even realizing it. I'm very aware that my face doesn't change expression very often. My voice doesn't change expression very often. I'm not a very vocal or verbal person and I don't talk to a lot of people that can be off putting to some. So I often have the interchange of, I know how I'm expressing myself. I know what my prescience is. I can control it to some degree with my clients. I make them aware of that. I make them aware of like, Hey, my voice sounds doom and gloom. It's not, it's, you know, that's like, like, I'm not, I don't have disdain for you. I'm really, I want to help you. I have to make my coworkers aware, aware of that. I have to make random people I meet aware of that. It's just something I have to be aware of about myself because you, you get what you give sometimes. So, you know, we often have that comment in the world of like resting bitch face or uh, resting asshole face, those types of things. It's, Maybe not their 
faults, I guess is the way to say that, that that's how they come across. Yeah, that's maybe how they are. I mean, some people do just let their impressions leak out that method. That's how their Vox is. Or maybe they're just not aware of it. And if they're not aware of it, they don't know that they're being off-putting to you. And here's where we're going to flip it and come back to the self-awareness part. You need to be aware of how you represent yourself because you can't take shit personally that way. If I represent myself the way I represent myself and I take it personal if people, you know, find me, I don't know, put offish or they don't want to interact with me, that's my fault because I'm outwardly expressing that. I'm outwardly expressing, leave me the fuck alone. Why should I be shocked if I get that back? Well, I'm only going to be shocked if I didn't know that's how I was expressing myself. And this is where the self-awareness piece of Vox comes in is how are you expressing yourself and what do you expect in return from that? A smile can go a long way when used in the right interaction. You know, if you want someone to have an interaction with you, maybe you should smile at them. If you don't, don't. But understand the interplay there. Because then in the moral and ethical realm, if they get mad about it, it's on them. That's their fucking problem. But if you get mad about it because of how they treated you, because of how you expressed yourself, but you didn't understand how you're expressing yourself, that's that's a that's a trouble spot. It's a sticking point. So when you're aware of your voice, your expression, how you're interacting, be it physical or verbal or not, you know, however it's happening, if it's just eye contact, you can get a better interaction story. And by getting a better interaction story, you can better control the mental health that comes along with it. So let's step into the mental health side of things. What is Vox in the mental health world? Vox in mental health, in my personal opinion, remember I'm just an idiot on the internet and I'm not a professional in anything. This is not medical advice, not a doctor. Insert whatever claim disclaimer you want to put in here. Vox in the mental health side, your expression, your prescience is deeply part of your depression. It's deeply part of how you interact with the world, but also interact with yourself. You can think about your internal voice. What's it sound like? Do you have one? Not everyone has one. Not everyone can hear their voice in their own head. Not everyone can have a conversation in their own mind. That's a thing. Look it up. It's very interesting. But on that line of thinking, on that subject, if that's your vox, then you need to have verbal conversation with yourself. Maybe you need to go look at yourself in the mirror. That's where the mental health side of it comes from. This is partly... My again, personal opinion. This is not professional in any way. When we talk about PTSD, be it from childhood trauma to combat trauma, that understanding of Vox, that expression, that prescience is a memorization in the mental health side of things. And it comes down to the level of expression. Is kind of a poor way to put it, so let me explain a little bit. Your body's full of chemicals. Call them hormones. You have a threshold. Everyone's different. DNA, genetics, all that stuff. You have a threshold of hormones you can sustain and work with. 
Um, it, I don't think it would be too far out of the realm to use the example of someone who has an addiction, has a threshold of dopamine in which they live inside of. And that's, that's, they have to be in that, that realm where things are just fucking terrible and it all goes to shit. That's essentially how addiction kind of works chemically. The addiction is I'm addicted to this. That addiction can be food provides you dopamine. Like, Oh, I got my fix, right? The quote unquote fix is you got your hit of dopamine. That's what eating does. Smoking cigarettes, drugs, alcohol provides you dopamine. So when you go get your fix, you get your dopamine hit. When you come down off that dopamine rush, you start to feel like shit again because when dopamine lowers itself, cortisol level increases itself. You have this, the major four chemical cocktails, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, and cortisol that make up the chemical balance of these things. So when dopamine goes up, uh, there's great uh, representation. Um, I don't remember who did it, but if you Googled um, uh, chemical or dopamine chemical or serotonin chemical uh, interaction graphic or GIF, GIF, however you want to pronounce it, not getting into that fight. Um, it, there's a really good representation of like, oh, when, you know, when you eat pizza, dopamine goes up, you know, it, like it shows the levels in interaction to each other. You know, what stress looks like. Stress is a rise in cortisol, drop in dopamine, rise in norepinephrine, lowering of serotonin. So it shows that graphic. Um, if you want to look that up, it's really interesting. But in addiction, it's a dopamine hit. You're, you're looking for the next rush of dopamine. So if we go along that chemical route, we can look at the idea of what does that world of addiction create? Well, it creates a short window in which dopamine is necessary. And if we're not in that window of dopamine, whatever levels it is, and it's typically not like a here to here, it's just above this level. We just want more dopamine. That's what the addiction gives us. It's That's the mental health game. That's where addiction is driving the motive of, oh, more dopamine, more dopamine, more dopamine. Because that representation of Vox, that, that expression, only seeks that out, only sees that. So it's simply a chemical process of the body. And I'm not advocating for addiction here. I'm advocating for an understanding of, okay, that's how you understand your addiction. If you get control of that inward voice, oh, I'm seeking dopamine. Here's how I can better represent myself better understand my self-awareness points. So going back to PTSD situations, it's a memorization of that. It's a memorization of people have a threshold. Addiction creates a high dopamine threshold that needs to be sustained in order for that person to feel good or to, you know, feel okay, to be mentally okay, even though, yes, they're in a world of addiction, and that would be considered out of homeostasis, which would be disease. Addiction is disease. So they've created a new threshold level. Same thing with PTSD or traumatic experiences. The body just has a natural threshold level 
it's going to hit when it comes to cortisol, the stress hormone, or norepinephrine, the adrenal cortex hormone, you know, people who get adrenaline rush. So you can even have something like a, what we consider, quote unquote, an adrenaline junkie. I don't know. If, I don't, that's probably not a, a, you know, politically correct PC term anymore, but fuck it. You know, you have adrenaline junkies or someone who's seeking that out. They love that adrenaline rush. So their threshold of adrenaline goes up. They need more than this threshold to even feel like, you know, something. So they're seeking that out and that becomes an addiction. This is how that methodology works. So on the other side, when you have, you know, people who have anxiety attacks, PTSD, these types of things, that might come from they have a low threshold tolerance for cortisol. So as stress levels increase, their cortisol levels increase and eventually gets over a threshold and they have an episode or they have a breakdown or, and unless they have an understanding of that, their Vox is going to be completely messed up. Their expressive nature, their voice has no real voice. It has no real medium or methodology to understand the interactions because they're stuck in that. They're stuck with out knowing that their, their outward expression is being controlled by these threshold levels. And these threshold levels are something they really don't have control of because they don't even know about them. And that's where I often try not to judge someone completely on the things they say. And I'd like to look at both sides. What do they say? What do they do? And I don't ask why questions. I ask what, how, where, when, mostly how questions. How does this interaction, you know, design this or how does it benefit them or those types of things? Because it gives us a, a better understanding and we can use that in understanding ourselves. So when you look at the Vox side of mental health, your, your expressatory methodology to yourself, your inward communication, your inward conversation, what's it saying? You know, maybe you are one of those people who don't have a voice in your head, or maybe you are. That's just uniquely you. And the same for your depression. So like, is your want for pizza, you eating your emotions? Is your necessity for that next cigarette, you hitting your cortisol threshold level? These things can help us better understand our mental health scape so that we can put plausible plausible methods in place. I'll use myself as an example, as I often do. I know when I've hit my limit. It takes a lot, and I'm not trying to boast here, but like I've just been through a lot in my life and I just happen to be, fortunately, one of those people who has a very high cortisol threshold. I can go through lots and lots and lots of stress and just, I used to just internalize it. So there's the, let's use that as an example. I used to just internalize my stress and let those cortisol levels build up until a breaking point. That breaking point was typically a, a bender. I would go drink, be social, and just try to get it out that way. Didn't really work for me. Not great methodology. That was my coping mechanism that really wasn't working. So my Vox, my outward expression was, woo, yeah, drinking 
but really the internalization, the real internal conversation was, I fucking hate everything. I'm so super stressed out. I don't know what to do. What's going to happen next? Fucking cars breaking down. Job sucks. Not don't have enough money for rent. Can't pay the phone bill behind on my bills. Just boom, boom. You just pile shit on. I never got to a breaking point of having like a huge mental breakdown, but I definitely got to the point where before that I drink way too much or I'd stay out way too late or, you know, I wouldn't pay attention to what my body was telling me or all of these different things in my martial experience, specifically when I was practicing like combat, like actually training combatives, I would just let myself get fucking pummel just I don't think I've ever won a sparring match I, I can't think of one that I actually won because I didn't mind getting hit like that was part of my self-harm thing which was another one of my coping mechanisms was to cause self-harm and it's a complicated interplay I guess that's what I'm really getting at here is that 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 vox that internal conversation that internal expression making that translation between outward self-awareness and inward mental health. It's tough. And it takes a really long time to figure out because I went from, again, I'm just using myself as an example because it's all I really have. It's only anecdotal. I went from suicidal tendencies that express themselves as physical harm to, oh, I like physical harm. Get your ass kicked in martial arts. See how you, you make that internal structure. And that's the conversation that never really happened in my head of why, or again, why is subjective. So sometimes we do have to ask why, even though I don't like why questions, but what was the reasoning behind having no driver motivation to win a sparring match? Was it because I was a pacifist or because I, you know, didn't care? No, the reality was, I like getting hit. I like, I liked causing myself self-harm and by proxy using someone else to do it. So I didn't feel so bad about me doing it to myself, even though it was me doing it to myself and then even feeling shittier because I let someone else be culpable in that whole process without them even knowing it. And that was shitty, which is why I, one of the reasons I stopped having, um, combative interactions with people I was training with because it's not fair to them if they didn't know that I don't mind getting hit because I liked key. I liked it because of I was trying to self-harm myself. That's a fucked up interplay. Um, so that's where I found a huge disconnect in, again, the outward self-expression of Vox, my voice, my methodology of self-awareness externally and the internal voice or internal conversation expression of mental health. And we, I'm bringing this up specifically to talk about the interplay of self-awareness and mental health. Cause I think we kind of combine them together. And I think I might've combined them together quite often. And it's not that they're not combinable. It's not that they're kind of two sides of the same coin idea where you know, we talk about intention, how I talked about internal and external uh, martial systems or energy, quote unquote, you know, those types of things. It's intention. I think self-awareness and, and mental health could be used 
to express or talk about intention. It's, it's not solely that. They're not just solely that two sides of that one coin, but I, I think it's a, a trajectory we could use, a vector we could use to talk about them is what's your intention? Because that's your vox, that's your voice. But it's 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 multifaceted. What's your intention towards yourself? What's your intention towards the outside world? What do you expect back using those intentions? I got bad interactions using the intention of self-harm. I got a martial career, a martial arts career that kind of broke down. People who didn't trust me, not specifically for that, but because I got linked in with people who, you know, called me a spy and said I was trying to steal secrets from people because I lost sparring matches so I could see their methodologies. No, it's because I wanted to get fucking hit. I wanted to hurt. I wanted to feel pain. And I got branded uh, uh, outsider, spy person. It's all bullshit. It's all politics. But I wasn't paying attention to my intentions. At the same time, there was individuals who were around me who maybe didn't always have my best interest in mind, but it's not like they didn't, you know, maybe they, you know, they did, they did enjoy my company and they liked being around me. They didn't wish me harm. They tried to, you know, express some sort of personal relationship ideas. And because of how my intentions were working, both internally and externally, I wasn't able to see it. And so I let people pick sides and I, I led people astray in the sense of not sticking up for them or choosing one side over the other. And that's part of being human. But until I understood the interplay of intentions, I didn't realize that I lost the possibility of having very good friends. A lot of times in my martial career, I ended up losing out on what could have been really great personal experiences and personal relationships because of how I was practicing martial arts or being a martialist or losing my voice to the group or the individual, you know, the, the leader, the Sifu sensei teacher position, because this was how I was supposed to act or, and it was maybe against how I really felt, but toe the line, have my voice, you know, you know, use their voice as my voice type of thing. That's why I think intentions really lead us down this this path of what is your voice? What is your vox? How do you express it? How do you want to express it? What are you expecting back out of that ex expression? The give take stuff. What's your conversation to your internal dialogue, to your internal self? How do you, ex you know, how do you express yourself to yourself? I know if I'm overwhelmed, if I, I've just had enough, I need to go find a nice quiet place to be myself by myself. That's how I best operate. Sometimes it's best just to leave me alone. And I will do all of the work 
that someone else is trying to do. Um, when I'm in, and I don't do it so much anymore. So we'll use a past example. Uh, I have this, this guy who knows me, his name's Oz. Shout out to Oz if he ever hears this, probably won't, but Oz, and, Oz used to come to the bar I used to work at. And uh, he was a, he was a handy secondary bouncer. You know, he's wasn't actually on the payroll, but he always showed up if there was a situation. I, I deeply respect him for that. Uh, he also did security. So like he had a background. I'm not, I'm not advocating for people to get involved in a security situation if you don't have any experience. Um, but Oz had experience and he could handle himself and he always showed up if he was there and there was a situation. I deeply respect him for that. Oz also multiple times attempted to be at a more personal level with me, to be more friendly. And because of how I am with work situations and not work situations, and also because of how I went about drinking publicly, where if I was drinking publicly at the time, it was probably for bad reasons. Oz saw that and he wanted to interact with me. He wanted to make sure I was okay, essentially. And I don't do well with that. And he pushed a little too far one night and I did what I do. I knew exactly what to do. I knew myself. I'm done with this conversation. Have a great night and walk away. Because if I don't, bad shit's going to happen. We're going to do a fight or I'm going to say something off the cuff. My filters start to break down. I stop paying attention. I have more emotional responses, which I know are not the greatest thing to do for me personally. So I walked away. Oz followed me out the door. And I knew in my mind, if he stops me, puts his hands on me, says something to me, this is going to end in an altercation. I'm not going to hurt Oz. He's not going to hurt me. But we're probably going to have a a physical slash verbal conversation here. It's not going to be good for either one of us. We're probably not going to be friends at all after this. I could feel the moment where Oz realized that was a thing. My prescience leaked out. I lost control of my body. And I knew it. I could feel it at the time. And I imagine Oz, if he thought about it, he felt it too. Just mm, better just to leave him alone. What Oz probably doesn't know is as soon as he backed off, as soon as he realized, nope, better not get, better just leave this one alone. I had the full conversation with myself. I had the full interaction of, I know Oz just wants the best for me. I know he just wants to make sure I'm okay. Not going to hurt myself because he knows I have a history of that. He, you know, has lost people due to suicide and that's an emotional thing for him. And it's a really hard thing to go through for people. And it has, you know, he just, he doesn't want to do, he doesn't want to have that to happen again. He doesn't want to have to happen to me. So I had that conversation. By the time I even got to my car, I was already completely calmed down, but I needed that time of, Dude, just leave me alone. He didn't know that. I didn't express that. But I knew myself enough that that was my voice at the time. And it leaked out into this. I probably puffed up. I I know how to puff up. I know how to become real big or real small. But my prescience will leak out. People have this. We're animals by nature. We feel this in other people. You can read someone. If you spend enough time around them, you can read them without, you know, verbal interaction or, you know, even physical interaction. You might just be like, "Mm, you know, avoid that room because that person's pissed. Those types of things. Or, oh, that person's sad. And that is Vox. That is intention. Our intentions rule 
a lot of what's going on in our lives and we don't always see it. And if we do pay attention to it, we can get a real good grasp of how to be more self-aware or what level of self-awareness am I expressing at this time? I think self-awareness is kind of a fluid thing. I don't think we just have it. I think we can learn it. But as far as expressing it goes, that's on a day-to-day basis. If your cortisol levels hit that threshold and you have a panic attack, you're probably not expressing self-awareness because you're now into this chemical storm of, I don't know what the fuck's going on. Everything's terrible. I don't know what to do. That's not a moment where you're going to apply self-awareness. So I think that's an important statement. It probably took me too long to get to this point in this episode, but you know, wrapping up here towards the end of this conversation, I don't think we should be hard on ourselves when we get to that breaking point and we break. One of the best things I've learned specifically through physical combat is when you're broken, you're broken. And that's okay. It's okay to be broken. The best thing you can do is to realize when you are and to understand, oh, I'm broken. I need to stop pushing myself. Now's the point to just lay off. To, You know, I used to go to classes and the old school mentality in martial arts, not martialism, but martial arts specifically, was the suck it up mentality. And that's not the right method of training. Knowing when you're broken is to know your limits. And once you understand where your limits are, certainly can you push them farther? Can you learn to go farther, go harder, do more? Absolutely. We used to call it limit breaking. Limit breaking is when you can get into the mindset to tell yourself, nope, I can go harder. I can go deeper. My body can do more. That's called limit breaking. And I've seen people do amazing things. Every time a power lifter gets up there and lifts more, a heavier weight for the first time, not maybe during the competition thing, because that's trained. We don't often get to see it unless you're in the gym with them and watching them train. If you're their training group or whatever, when a power lifter lifts that new record weight for them, their new personal best, that first time, that's a limit break. They stood there. They looked at that weight and they said, I don't know if I can, but I think I can. And then at some point in time during that lift, it's a really amazing moment and it's super quick. It's like fucking lightning. You realize when they realize, oh shit, I can do this. I can push myself farther. I could probably lift more than this. And then all of a sudden they put up their personal best and they never look back. That's called limit breaking. The problem though, with the mentality of, I need to push through is when you break, you have to realize when you break and that it's okay. It's okay to be broken. Absolutely. Just beyond this conversation in self-awareness and mental health alone, it's just a, a personal conversation between you and I right now. I want you to know no matter what the circumstances are, the situation, self-awareness, mental health, life in general, I don't care what the fuck it is. It's okay to be broken because what society sees as broken is vastly different than what you should see as broken. 
because your broken is yours. I know when I break, I know what happens. I'm sure you have some sort of inkling or idea of what broken for you feels like or is. You might be broken right now. The differentiation I'm going to ask you to make is what's broken and what's breaking. There's a massive difference. I know now when I'm at my breaking point. I only learned that by being broken. At a physical level, I know the stress and strain my joints, muscles, and everything else can take in my body to the point where they break. Thus, I know when I'm breaking and I can counteract that in a martial situation. If someone puts me in a weird arm bar, a new plata, a Kimura, or, you know, like a, a weird joint lock, or I know when my body's going too far. To give you a specific representation, I know how much it takes to choke me out. I've been choked out multiple times. It's not very easy to do because of how my physical body structure is and how I learn how to breathe that I've in sparring situations, let myself be choked for two to three minutes total. <laughs> just people just keep choking. They keep trying harder to choke me and I just don't tap out because I just, I, I know like you're not, you haven't locked in this choke enough for me to know that I'm going to pass out yet. In order to know that I've been choked out multiple times. I've had all sorts of methodologies in which people have choked me out. So I could learn that not recommending it, but it's a piece of knowledge I got. And I make light of it because that's the idea of knowing when we're broken and then using that to understand where our breaking point is. Because as soon as you understand where that breaking point is, you can push it a little bit further. That's when you can train for that to go farther, to deal with more, to get through more, to get through the next day, but really get through the next minute, get through the next second. That's the real conversation about being broken and breaking, to understand that interplay. If you're broken, awesome. Now you know where your breaking point is. So that the next time it happens, you can have a, maybe a self-awareness moment or a mental health moment and go, Oh, wait, I'm breaking. My cortisol level threshold has gotten too far. My dopamine is dipped too low and I really need that cigarette. Really need that drink. Really need that fucking hit of meth or heroin or whatever the fuck it is as far as addictions go. Because opioids, who knows? But getting that interaction and that understanding of your vox, your, your intentions, and understanding if they're your intentions or something else. Are they chemical? Are they someone else's intentions for you? What's the interplay here? What is your voice? What is your vox? What is it saying? How is it saying it? What is it really telling you? Gives you an understanding of your breaking and broken. And when you know when you're breaking, you can stop yourself from being broken because you can stop the breaking. And even if you can't, if it's completely outside of your ability to fully control, you'll know what happened? What broke you? Because then you can fight against that next time. You can get back up. You can do what the Japanese say. You can say, Muchido. Again, that's if you've ever watched a, a Kido studio or a, a Kido dojo, 
you have these people who get thrown or get put in a joint lock, get choked out, and they get up and they say, Muchiro, and they do it all over again. Maybe this time they controlled the throw a little bit more before it happened, or they learned to roll out of the joint lock, or they lasted 10 seconds more before the chokehold actually got locked in. Moichido again, Moichido again, Moichido again, and they push their limits a little bit further and a little bit further. And that's proper training comparative to being broken, having a broken hand, and then going and punching a heavy bag, or having a broken hand and working with the Mokyongjong, you know, having a fractured radius or ona and, you know, doing combat drills, doing blocks and stuff. That's broken. That means rest, recover. Because yeah, when it comes to bones and all these tens, ligaments, this, the structures heal. When you rehab them, they heal back stronger. That's just what they do. That calcification process, if you get the right, you know, internal stuff going on, you tend to heal back stronger. And I find that's kind of anecdotally true for any situation. Anytime someone breaks, if you're broken now or if you're breaking, you're going to heal back stronger. That's that's the balance. Remember, the universe is constantly seeking balance, but it's doing it asymmetrically. It's going to break you to rebuild you. And it sucks. I'm not saying it doesn't suck, but there's some solace in that idea that you'll be stronger next time. And I'm here to tell you that I'm not the happy-go-lucky person. So, yeah, you're going to be stronger next time. And then the next time you're going to be stronger. And the next time you're going to be stronger. And the next time you're going to be stronger. And you're just going to keep getting stronger. If you are tired of that process, avoidance is the key. And avoidance comes from knowing where that breaking point is. Because in martial situations, specifically in the Japanese arts, we teach people how to fall before we teach them to throw someone. You got to learn how to be thrown and to fall correctly before you can get thrown, (laughs) essentially. You know, before you can throw someone, you need to know how that interplay happens. So if someone does go to throw you, you know, just roll, get back up. That's parkour, that whole system, is just knowing how to fall correctly. They're training how to fall correctly. They know if I jump off this really high building thing and I land this way, I won't hurt myself. So it's the art of not getting hurt. So that's the key to avoidance is to know where that breaking point is and then learn how to mitigate the damage that can happen. Because even that's a success. And I don't, I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about that. It was a big thing for me to learn. And it's not that I got frustrated in my martial training about always losing because I was seeking that out. What I would get frustrated about is watching other people, uh, I guess, I mean, I'll say it, but I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but watching other people jump the line, I guess, or not watching people. I like watching people be better than me. I don't mind that. It was watching people get recognized for something greater than their ability. Again, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm representing that correctly, but I'll try to explain just a little bit further. Watching someone move 
ahead of the line due to something that had nothing to do with practice, ability, capability. I guess you could take this even farther into like a political sense of it can be very frustrating to watch someone get ahead due to nothing else but some personal opinion someone had. Some stupid bias that doesn't make any sense. And I had to learn just to let that go. It doesn't really affect me. It's not my problem. I think I got it. Okay. Sorry. It took me a little bit here to get it. But judging myself against others. It's not a bad thing really to do to like give you an idea of like where you're at. But someone else's black belt doesn't, has nothing to do with my black belt. Someone else's second degree black belt has nothing to do with my second degree black belt. I can't say third degree, never got one. But someone else's white belt had nothing else to do with my white belt. I was a white belt for like two years, three years. I don't even remember. I was a white belt for a really long time because I didn't, I didn't believe in that ranking system. I didn't care. Part of that came from my idea that I was just judging myself against all of these other people. For what purpose? That's how I understood or began to understand that interchange of that intention of Vox. And breaking points and being broken. And it's yours is yours. Your depression is your depression. Your methodology is your methodology. Your system is your system. Your ideas are your ideas. It's you. Understand you. Don't worry about everybody else. Understand you. That's the most important part of the game there. So when we talk about if it's addiction, if it's self-harm, if it's suicidal tendencies, if it's being accident prone and feeling you don't have any control over that or a constant repetitive nature for the universe to fuck with you, stubbing your toe. I don't care the, the simplicity or the, the complication. That idea of your own personal conversation of breaking and broken changes the interaction to understand methodologies you can put in place to break less. And that's what I don't hear people talking about is the success of breaking a little less. That's the art of falling in martial arts is to not get as hurt as you could have. That's the not judging yourself, not judging your black belt against someone else's or your white belt against someone else's or someone else's achievements against yours. And instead looking at yourself as the measurement system, self-awareness, mental health, intentions. Are your intentions based on someone else's vox, someone else's voice or opinion or ideas or representation of what you think or what they think you should be? Or is your vox, your representation, your intentions 
yours and measured upon your successes and your failures and the interplay there in between. Because when we break, which will happen, we're humans, we're going to break, we are breakable things. How much did we break this time compared to last time? Did the 70 hour work week break us or did we just have a beer and watch a movie and eat a pizza? And it wasn't that bad. This measurement system allows for a whole other set of conversations, but specifically when we talk about Vox and voice and our expression, how we interact both externally and internally, the measurement system needs to be based on you, not someone else, not someone else's opinions, ideas, not even mine. You don't have to listen to shit. You don't have to be like, Phil, fuck you, move on. That's fine. That's totally okay. It's you. You're the measurement system when it comes to your voice, your vox, your expression, your intentions. So that's the conversation I, I don't think is happening all the time. And I'd like you to have with yourself is, are you broken? Awesome. Rock bottom is the best, most solid ground you can stand on. Do you know your breaking points? Do you want to be able to push them a little bit farther? Or are there methodologies in which you can mitigate them? When you're at your breaking point, when you do break, do you measure that later and understand that maybe you broke a little less? That's a huge thing. Uh, I don't remember the name of it, unfortunately, but there's an entire art in Japan of taking broken um, cups, bowls, ceramics, and putting them back together with gold and as like a filler, and it, it makes these beautiful pieces of art. When I learned about that, it was like an epiphany aha moment of, oh shit, that's awesome, because when you break, you get to mold the pieces back together and fill it in with gold. And if you understand anything about how this this gold filler they make up works is that if you were to drop that piece again, it most likely will break into the pieces that it was before the same breaks. It won't really add new breaks. It's a very interesting interplay of chemical adherence. And certainly yes, more pieces can be broken and you can just fill them back in with gold. And at this point, I'm probably rambling a little bit too much, but I am long-winded by nature. So please take some time to look at your breaking points, how you break, measuring your breaks. And remember, it's all based on you. It's all based on your vox, your voice, your external expression, internal expression, the conversation in between, how they translate to each other. It's all you. And once you can start to control that a little bit more, I think you'll find you can better interplay with those things. So the next panic attack, you can push it off as much as possible, or you can recover from it quicker, or you can get a, have a better understanding of it afterwards. Another conversation I don't think we have very often is it's so stressful. Horribly stressful. Cortisol levels through the roof. 
that after a panic attack or an anxiety episode or PTSD moment, just a, an outburst of the internal bashing that happens. I'm so stupid for having that interaction. I'm so stupid for having that reaction. I'm such an idiot for, you know, showing my, showing that weakness. I'm, you know, this, that, or the other thing, just that, that Vox, that internal expression of just beating up on yourself after you just had a breaking moment. So if you don't understand that that breaking moment might've just been your cortisol levels had hit a threshold that your nervous system didn't know what to do. And the only thing to do was to act out. Of course you're going to beat yourself up. What's the point of that though? Does it make you feel any better? What's a better conversation you could have at that point? Now, that when you do get that modicum of control back after the anxiety attack, after the PTSD episode, what kind of conversation can you have that might better suit you or, or, or have a better outcome for the next time or that time? And yeah, maybe that is the, that's the methodology in which you need to go talk to a professional and have counseling and have extra guidance there. I don't know. Not a professional here. That's a conversation you have you yourself. And if you want to get a professional involved with that, but my side of the story is I spent hours beating the hell out of my body, doing an, an, an internal and external practices that are literally meant to age the body faster, to cause calcification of tendons and ligaments. It's known as iron body systems to make my bones harder and denser on the outside to calcify my ligaments and tendons so that when you hit me, it hurts you. These types of things. I did all of that out of a, a misunderstanding of my intentions in a positive manner. I was trying to push my breaking points farther down the road. The misunderstanding though was breaking, being broken physically and then sometimes mentally and thinking pushing harder and farther was somehow going to make me stronger. When in reality, I was just making it 10 times worse. So if I would have just taken some time to recover, I could have then gotten farther quicker. The longer the injury reoccurs, the longer the injury is sustained, the longer the healing process takes, the longer it takes to get stronger, the longer it takes to get better, the longer time it takes to actually really heal. And that's a conversation you have to have with yourself. And that's where true self-awareness and true control over mental health can come from when we do have that conversation. And yes, maybe you need to have that conversation with a professional. I'm not here to say one way or the other on that situation. I'm just here to say, your voice is yours. It's time to understand it. It's time to get control of your Vox and to better represent yourself to better understand yourself. So please think back on this episode, some of the questions Think about how you express yourself internally, externally. 
you know, what, what, when, where, how, and I will even throw in why do you say or do the things you do in order to express your intentions and what, when, wow, what, when, where, how, when, or why, how you write a story, do you expect in return from those intentions you're expressing? Because that interplay is really important. And if you find a a disconnect there, it's time to look into that and, and study it and figure out how maybe you can change that to get a better interaction in the future to better represent who you are or how you want to feel. You know, I, I talked about um, a couple episodes ago. Uh, I think it's episode 27, content. That middle ground. That not happy, not sad, the right in the middle. So how do your intentions imply getting that middle ground? And should you be expecting the middle ground to come from those intentions? That's a, that's like an inception next level methodology of going about looking at it. But I think it's important to look at it that way. So go express your vox, your voice, uh, be it physical, verbal, however it gets expressed. However, that's who you are. Your, your vox is yours. My vox is mine. Mine comes out in this podcast a bit. So take care. I'll see you on the next one. Um, listen to the outro. Please head over to taminghindrances.com. And specifically head over to the archive at taminghindrances.com and check out some of the links and resources there. Um, And I'll see you on the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening. Come check us out at taminghindrances.com for show notes, links, resources, and more. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or your preferred platform. If you leave us a spiffy review, we might just mention it on the show. Now go be awesome and just remember to breathe.